Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, we're talking about community over profit. That's right, community over profit. We have a one-on-one episode with Memo Salazar. Memo is a Mexican-born filmmaker, writer, and activist, and a longtime resident of Queens, New York. As a director, his work ranges from public enemy music videos to Elmo tackling homelessness on Sesame Street. He has collaborated with theoretical physicist Brian Greene on a TED Talk, won three Emmy Awards, and produced an animated series for Rohingya refugee children exiled from their home country of Burma. As an activist, he is a recipient of Arena's Five Borough Future Fellowship and the 2019 Queen's Latinx Leadership Award for his community work. He has co-run the Sunnyside CSA since 2007 and is now the co-chair of the newly created Western Queens CLT which aims to bring truly affordable housing and community-owned land ownership to New York City. It's an incredible episode that you should share with your friends. Get involved in your community and how to have affordable housing. Hey guys, this week, if you're near or if you live in Tulsa, Oklahoma, come see me. I'll be at the Crane Theater, yes, this Saturday. The early show, so make sure you don't miss me. Just go to my website. The links are all there to buy tickets. Go to marinafranklin.com. I want to thank all of our listeners of Friends Like Us. Because of you, we make some pretty impressive lists. You can hear us on Google Podcasts Now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Apple Podcasts. Review and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe. That's important. Make sure you turn on the auto-download function for Friends Like Us on Apple Podcasts. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail. Our Instagram is friendslikeuspodcast and Twitter is friendslikeus10. Become more than a friend. Leave us a tip or donation. Just go to our Patreon page. Go to Patreon backslash friendslikeus. Special shout out to our Patreon friends. Now you have the opportunity, if you're golden, if you're a golden friend, you can watch our live recording backstage every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That's right. Merch is available. We have t-shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, face masks, and tank tops. They're all available. Just go to my website, marinafranklin.com. Weekly on my YouTube channel, I go live with my assistant, Evelyn Frick, and my wacky friend, Dave Juska. Ooh, it got emotional this past week. We give updates to the show. We shout out fans who leave reviews. And we have surprise guests from the podcast stop by. And free stuff like tickets to comedy shows and with friends like us it'll help you feel not so alone because more content is on the way tell a friend you know to check us out stay safe wash those dirty little hands wear a mask still if you want to because the variant is here still I mean, that vaccine for the booster for the variant ain't coming soon enough. We got two weeks, hey, baby. And you can booster up. Or uh, get vaccinated for polio or monkeypox. I mean, it's crazy. And Black Lives Matter.
We've it's been a crazy time with friends like us today, everybody. It's like we've had a guest cancel, but that's okay because we have an amazing guest actually that can spend more time with you. Because I think you're doing some really good stuff that I, I want our listeners to hear about and really focus in on you. And so this is pretty cool. <laughs> I appreciate it. It'll be good. Like this first story. Well, first. Memo, tell everyone about yourself and what you're doing, <laughs> what you're doing sure. to change the world. I mean, how much can you, you know, you just do a little bit, you do what you can. But um, yeah, I am a filmmaker who uh, somehow I, I've been living in Queens for 20 years now this month, it's 20 year anniversary. I love Queens and I've come to really feel like I'm a part of this community in like a really, really, really strong way. Um, I think at some point a long time ago, I just kind of realized that national politics is just, you know, a ridiculous mess of greed and power that you'll never really, I mean, you do what you can, right? You cast your vote every four years or whatever you call your senators, but like you're, you're fairly ineffectual in changing that giant machine. Uh, but you can do a lot more locally. And so, uh, I started focusing on New York, um, and specifically Queens. Uh, not for any reason other than I just started realizing I, I could do something and I cared and I and I cared about the people around me. And so somehow my I have these parallel lives of like filmmaker uh, making creative stuff with crazy comedian friends. And then on the other side, like uh, like just getting into like activism in Queens and uh, and the two sometimes meet and sometimes they don't. But um, they're both equally fulfilling in different ways. And, and I just it's like takes up all my time. Uh, on top of like having a kid and being a dad and all that other crazy stuff. So that's like a third life. So that's right. You are a dad. I know. It's hard to imagine, but it's true. Now, Stace knows Dave Juskow from our Saturday Live. So Stace is going to be shocked when I say that he is Dave Juskow's friend. That's how I met Memo. <laughs> um, <It's> true. <laughs> Don't hold that against me. I'm so sorry. <laughs> You know, because you're an incredible person. And it's like, Dave Juskow, how how did you two meet, actually? Oh, through Rachel, through Rachel. I was, you know, the first, um, I literally, 20 years ago, I moved here. And I don't know, I know a couple of people. I don't really know a lot of people. And, uh, but my roommate at the time um, worked for Michael Moore. And uh, Rena, Rena Zager worked for Michael Moore. I love and, Rena. And they both were like, they went to like a, a screening, a, like a casting crew screening of Bowling for Columbine. And I was like my friend's plus one and Rachel was Rena's plus one. And so we get there and like, they're all like yakking it up and we're both like, no, nobody. And we're just kind of looking around. So I think like Chris was like, this is Rena. And then she's like, oh, this is my friend Rachel. And we just started talking and we just hit it off like right there. She made me laugh like right away. We both were on the same wavelength and we we're both just like, man, this is crazy. And uh, and then she had this project she had been trying to figure out. And I'm like, I'm doing nothing. I, I'd be happy to help you out. And like we started working on her Mon Cherie. I don't know if you remember Mon Cherie way mm. back in the day. It was like this mockumentary she was doing. And uh, I mean, this is like 20 years ago, you know, so she was just starting out. And so. It was fun. And I just loved working with her and we just became friends. And then somewhere in there, just Rachel appeared. Feinstein, just that's so our right. listeners are Rachel Feinstein. Okay. Go right. Ahead. That's right. Uh, and somehow she sucked and she's been apologizing for 20 years about introducing me to Jessica. <laughs> 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 so, but he's, yeah, you know, we, for all his stupidity and like dumb ideas that he carries in his head, he's a good guy, you know, and he's yes. trying. And so it's like, 
you know, he's lovable. Like, how can you not love him? I mean, a lot of people don't, but like the truth <laughs> is he's a good person. So uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. And I, I make no apologies for being his friend, even though he's a complete moron. <laughs> I know. I agree. I, it's like, I'm always like, no, Jessica, look, Stace says agreed. Then I see all the stuff you're doing, you know, true story for the listeners. The reason I connected with Memo recently is because everyone knows I have this problem where I can't stop complaining about things around me. But then I have in New York City, we have so many things to complain about lately after the pandemic that it's as crazy. It's not really that crazy. I get a, a specific company. I won't say their name, but they deliver me items and they delivered it on the first floor leaving it to be stolen. And I have in my notes that they need to deliver all the way up to my door. And when I called, all I asked was, is this a service or is this not a service? Just let me know, which by the way, I discussed with Dave Juskow and he agreed that I was right. <laughs> but you know, it's like, I don't want to get into the whys. I just want to know if it's a service. And the guy kept saying, if there's a area that we can, our drivers can park, can you let us know? I'm not going to do that research for your company. That's the, that's your job as a company. I mean, yeah, that would be a nice friendly thing to do, but not in New York city. Everyone's looking for parking space. So come on. Like that's not a legitimate explanation for not delivering the package, which it has in my notes. If you cannot deliver to the door, please contact us and we'll figure it out and we'll let her know. None of that was done. Anyway, I haven't I haven't ordered for them. I was so gonna I ask, them. curious, like, what's the upshot? So the, the upshot is you didn't you just stopped ordering from these. Guys? I just thought I just you know for now until I feel. <laughs> of course, I didn't wasn't able to make my salads this week like <laughs> I normally do. But like I called Memo because I know Memo does such incredible work with farmers and 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 Rachel linked me to this company, so I thought that was you. But you but what do you do with farmers exactly? Oh, man. Well, um, I guess it kind of started in uh, geez, when 20, 2007, I think I, I first or 2006, somewhere in there. I, I first heard of this thing called CSAs, Community Shared Agriculture. And it was basically like like people in a neighborhood hooking up with a farm to get their food straight from the farm, skipping all the middlemen. And you would get like farm fresh, like right to you, lower price because of that. And I was like, wow, that sounds pretty amazing. I, I just love the idea. And so like I looked into it and someone was starting one here in Sunnyside where I live. And so I was like, sign me up. And ever since then, I, I just fell in love with the whole model. And I've been, then I became a part of the group. And so I've been like co-running it for now for like 15 years or whatever. Um, and I mean, there's just, I mean, there's, you know, we can complain about all the problems, you know, and there are many to complain about, but like CSA is to me are like one of those like really easy solutions where you can, do a lot of good by just doing this one little switch. And so like, basically you're giving a farm a chunk of money at the beginning of the season. And in return, you're getting a share of their harvest every week, all summer and fall. So like half the year. And so you're getting a box of like fresh, like literally fresh from the ground yesterday vegetables. And like they're cheaper than if you were to go to a farmer's market. The thing that you're, you're trading in is convenience. You don't get to pick your vegetables. You're eating what comes out of the ground in this part of the world every week. And so 
you have to be cool with that. And so you have to be, you know, which is like you're eating seasonally, you start to learn, oh, here's like the food that's native to my soil, this is right? What I've learned, yeah. Yeah, it's great. And so you're you're not getting avocados, you're getting like stuff from the ground now. Like right now it's tomato season, so you're getting tomatoes, lots of tomatoes and so on. And it's great. And so like um you eat way healthier, you save money. And then the bigger, the other part of it is you're giving farmers like a ton of money. So like farmers, even if, even the farmer's market farmers who are like organic and local and whatever, they don't know what people are going to buy every week. And so they have to come with a bunch of produce and hope that apples will be like the hot thing this week or lettuce or whatever. They're just trying to guess. And then whatever people don't buy, they have to bring back and figure what to do with it. That stuff doesn't last too long. So they're either like chucking it or giving it away or selling it locally cheaper. It's not an easy system for them. They can't predict, they can't budget for a year because they don't know if it's going to be a great weather year or a shitty weather year where they're going to get like rained out and lose a lot of crops. Like they just don't know. So with a CSA, they get all the money up front and you kind of are like in a partnership with them. You're basically saying like, we're with you no matter whether it's like a great year or a shitty year, like we're giving you the same amount of money where we got your back and they're like, okay, we're going to do our best to like get you the best food we can. And so like, there's like this relationship with the farmer and you're skipping all that horrible middle, you know, American industrial agriculture garbage that has caused like so many, you know, global warming, diabetes, cancer, all the crap that like, you know, you can point back to our horrible food system you're just like straight up farmer you and that's it. And so like, to me, I'm like, those are the kind of solutions I want to be a part of. And it also builds a community because people are all, you get to know people. Like I've made lots of friends over the years, you know, you get to know like people that are cool and, and you've got more of like a tight, tight knit community. It's like, you need a favor, you can call them, they call you. I mean, it's like a family. And so like, for me, that's why I love Queens and I love living here. It's not just because of the CSA, but that's kind of like a, an example of what has made me fall in love with like, local things and, and like working with people. That is awesome. Cause I, I didn't know about farmers, the importance of farm products until I had breast cancer. I don't know if you knew I had breast cancer. I, I did. And I'm just go was a, I, I couldn't believe it, but he was a good friend. He was very <laughs> right? good. He came I was like, to all the you're treatments. Doing, I know. I was like, you're doing what? Are you kidding? <laughs> it's like blows my mind. <laughs> yeah, he came to all the treatments. He made friends with all the receptionists. Loves him. She still remembers him. I went back uh, recently just to get my checkup. And she's like, how's your friend? <laughs> <laughs> Is he single? Yeah. You know, um, but he was he was complaining about the coffee not working that day. And that's why she remembers him. But he um, but yeah, he you know, it was. Breast cancer that really opened my eyes, you know, I say it was a blessing in disguise in a weird way, because had I not gotten breast cancer, a lot of my awareness wouldn't be there about health, right? I just didn't think about it. I mean, this is what we all do. And I, and I saw this during COVID. A lot of people didn't understand they could get really sick. And when you don't understand you can get sick, you don't put measures in place for your life you just don't because you you've never been sick you don't know what it's like so you don't you don't do the pre that's why you see all these masks around my house on the doorknob you know because i'm one of those people like i understand this is real and so um i did some homework into what causes cancer and a lot of times it's in pe um pesticides uh you know if you need to know where your food comes from, you need to know what you're eating and what you're putting in your body. And a lot of times we don't. And I'm not great either. Like I had chicken yesterday and I'm a vegan. 
<laughs> the further away from my illness I get, I see I'm slipping a little bit. But I do my plant-based most, you know, I'm mostly plant-based. So I'm, and I get most of my broccoli and stuff from the farmer's market and from the other place that pissed me off. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. It's hard when you live in New York, right? We're such a social culture. So much of it is like you're meeting friends for this, you're meeting friends for that. You can't be like a purist all the time unless you're going to drive everyone crazy of like, I can only eat in these four restaurants. So like, it's really, you're balancing like, and this is just true with life in general. You're constantly balancing like being a part of this society, which is just inherently messed up and like sticking to what you think is like the right way to live. And you're just, you know, everyone's got their compromises. Like you can't do it all the time. But like the, uh, there's a, if anyone's interested, this uh, website, justfood.org, justfood.org is like a, a nonprofit group that like is like the umbrella for farmers, markets and CSAs. So like you're looking where you can eat healthily in your area. You go there, check out their map, punch in your zip code, and it'll show you like this place has this, this place has that. Um, so it's just a simple way. So even if you at home can change your eating habits at home and you're still going out here and there and like whatever, it's still better. It's still a step forward, you know? Yeah. I think I learned it through, I forget which site. It may have been from you too, where I learned where the farmer's market, I didn't know there was a great farmer's market, like literally steps away from me. That's been right. there for years. Morningside. Uh, uh, Morningside is the best. Yeah. Yeah. And in the, in the park. Mm hmm. Yeah. yeah. On 110th. And they yep. have one in Brooklyn and, you know, Union Square has a farmer's market. But I, I just and I know all the people there. Everyone hears my I get in fights at the farmer's market. too. <laughs> <laughs> I can't See, that's why myself. you're friends with Jesco, because <laughs> he does the same thing. He gets in fights in random places. And you're like, what did you say to piss someone off? Or why are you so mad at this person? And he's like, Cause, you know, he's writing letters all the time. I don't know if you write letters. the way. Jessica oh, I write tons of letters. <laughs> I am a letter writer. It's it gets I am. I, I wrote a letter to the farmer's market. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I sure did. I had a moment at the farmer's market. I remember the guy putting his hand on my shoulder and going, Can't, do you need a moment? Do you need to breathe? And I, he annoyed me. I was like, get away. What are you talking about? I could breathe. <laughs> anyway, um, I wanted to bring up this article while we're talking about farmers market. The black and farmers of color may finally get a lifeline under the Inflation Reduction Act. Democratic senators have strategically rolled back programs in the American Rescue Plan in order to repurpose the funds into the Inflation Reduction Act. The bill will give $2.2 trillion to help farmers who experience discrimination in Department of Agriculture farm lending programs before January 2021. Get that. It's a farm lending program and they experience discrimination. Another $3.1 billion will go to those who borrowed loans administered by Farm Service Agency. The original American Rescue Plan provided debt assistance to farmers of color who experienced racism, but inadvertently produced lawsuits from white farmers that have held funding for more than a year. They've held up funding for more than a year. 25% of disadvantaged farmers are black and under 2% of American farms are black owned. Do you hear about this a lot, Memo? Or um, This specific uh, bill and so on, I, I wasn't aware of, but I mean, I definitely hear about this a lot in a general sense and, and more... 
you know, less because of the CSA farm stuff we just talked about and more about the other thing I've gotten involved with, which is like community land trusts and that and land and who owns land and who controls it. That's where like, you know, you see so much like great, like, you know, it's like redlining. It's like, oh, look at the black and brown people owning this much of the world. And then like the white people own so much more. And like that just is so systemically messed up. So like in that sense, I know a lot, but I haven't followed like I didn't know about the story until you sent it to me. I was really curious. Um, the thing that I noticed that was like, I think is sort of like, like, it sounds great, right? Obviously, like on on the top, I'm like, oh, this is great. But then the truth is, and this is what I've found a lot is like the devils and the details in terms of um, it's like, it looks like, like these Republicans are trying to like, like delay and block certain things. So they're like, okay, we'll kind of go around them with this other thing to try to funnel money. Now, the the danger is if they don't clearly write the law in a way that's like really clear and airtight, there will be loopholes and people will find ways to go through those loopholes and like discriminate even more, which I think somebody says at the end of the article, it's like yes. they haven't defined what they mean by discrimination. They haven't defined what they mean by protected classes. And so that's the part that like gives me pause. It's like, you don't want to, and this happens all the time. It's like, you don't want to not support a bill that at least gets you forward one step. But if in like 10 years, you've realized you actually went back four steps because nobody thought it through really well, then it's like, you just made even more problems. And so, I mean, that's like why Washington is such a nightmare. And you just like, I don't know enough to be able to say, you know, here's where the problems are with this bill. But like, that does give me, makes me a little nervous. Yeah, it says that you're right. It, it, unfortunately, the definition of discrimination is lacking as well as any protected classes. And so what will discrimination even mean? Who will these uh, adjud adjud adjudicators... <laughs> I can't read <laughs> B and how will they decipher what discrimination is when there's no reference to our civil rights protected classes. It's like when I get mad at the airline for discrimination, they're like, we don't have proof, but we'll give you like 10,000 flight miles. <laughs> <laughs> I should, um, I should use that more often. I should be like, yeah, that's good. It's a good tip. Oh, I always get flight miles. <laughs> I always get I get into it with I got into it with the woman because she was definitely treating me with some unconscious bias. And I was like, I didn't bring up, you know, the the thing. But I, I told this woman over the phone the story and I could tell she was Latina. And she was like, I totally understand what you're going through. And so she was like, you know, unfortunately, we don't have any way of proving. So I'm going to start recording from now on. I'm going to start recording right away in a sneaky way. There's got to be ways that you can record people. I know you're supposed to let them know, but I don't think I need to let them know. Well, I'll tell you this in my like activism. I've learned that um, New York State is a and I don't remember the phrase anymore. It's like single something that basically means you legally have the right to record anyone at any point in at least in a public setting. And that includes like us right now. Like if I was recording this right now, I would have completely the right to do it without telling you. What? And yeah, yeah. Uh, and there's definitely software that lets you just like screen capture all your video. So like you could do it now. It can be, you know, obviously there's like trust issues there. Like if you don't tell the person and you have a relationship with them, they might be like, what's up, Marina? But like technically from a legal standpoint, you can record every conversation that you're a part of. You have to be basically one person in the conversation 
you're, sorry, I should say it a different way. You have to be a person in the conversation that you're having, that you're recording. Like you couldn't be like a, a like an outsider recording someone else's private conversation. But if you are one of the people in the conversation, you have the right to record. So that's because I used to record my cab conversations, but I was told that was illegal. But in New York City, you can not in New Jersey, New York State. I know about New York State. Every state is different. And I'll, I can find you the phrase. It's like I remember I was talking to a lawyer about this and there because we Look were how like, excited I'm. <laughs> I know. I know. You're like, wait a minute. What? <laughs> <laughs> You've just started something funny. <laughs> it's true. You're going to have so much embarrassing stuff on other people. You'll be like, I got this piece of video on you. Yeah. Yeah, as long as you're like for your podcast, you could totally or any time you like Zoom with somebody. That's a, that's where I was like, we're having meetings with like elected officials. And I was trying to figure out, like, can we just record this meeting with this elected official and not tell them? Because they act differently when they know they're being recorded. Right. And so, oh, yes, they do. And the lawyers are like, you have every right. This is New York is a blah, 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 which I don't remember. And uh, and like I looked into it. And it was true. So. Yeah, because my super comes in and he's an asshole. I mean, he because I have a leak in my bathroom. You see a little you don't see it, but it's a very tiny little leak. And he, they don't fix it because they know that they want this apartment to be market value. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, but a lot of times I don't record them because I'm afraid that they'll act right when I record um, and they'll do the right thing or, you know, whatever. But now that I know this. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get that motherfucker. <laughs> okay. Hopefully, he's not listening to your podcast. He's like, well, no, he doesn't. What? He's not that smart. <laughs> trust me. Well, I'm gonna get you, Kenny. <laughs> so, um, let's go to the land trust and what you did. So, he, you know, it's most of this. The, our topics are with you. So, you know, our unfortunate other guests that didn't show up. Oh, well, <laughs> activists yeah. celebrate the ending of city's controversial tax lien sales. Tell us about this, because this is a, this is like the devil in the detail. Oh, yeah, totally. All right. So let me go back. I think connecting the last news story about uh, black farmers. Right. So, yes, CLTs are community land trusts, and it's a way for communities to own land, which um in New York has become harder and harder for anybody to own land because it's so crazy expensive. And so, uh, but they've actually been around since the sixties. Um, and it's interesting to be specific. The first CLT was actually created by the SNCC, you know, the student nonviolent coordinating committee and uh, Slater King, MLK's cousin. And they created the first one in Georgia to help black farmers who were like, who could not because of a million racist reasons could not, start farming and and own homes and so on and so the clt was a way to let them own the land and control the land and farm and live on the land and so on and that was the first one and ever since then the clt model has kind of spread across uh there's like one of the first urban ones was in burlington vermont um back in the early 80s that was when bernie sanders was a uh, mayor and he helped like people create the first one and it's just everywhere like boston i grew up I'm, I grew up in Massachusetts and like in uh, there's like uh, I forget if it's Roxbury or Dorchester, but like um, there's like a big one that's been around forever down there. And in New York, they haven't been so big for lots of different reasons. I mean, uh, just historically, I mean, like in the 70s and 60s, when like white flight was happening and all the prices were going down, it wasn't so much of an issue you know, cause there's a lot of cheap crappy <laughs> land everywhere. But, uh, now of course it's a huge issue. And so like the first one 
was uh, in Cooper Square uh, down in the Lower East Side in the 90s. And there was actually a, there was an advocacy group called Picture the Homeless, which was like homeless people advocating for themselves, saying like, we need to live somewhere. We need the city to back us up. They created a CLT in, in Cooper, uh, Cooper Square. And they, that CLT is still going on strong. They own several properties down in the East Village. And now that the East Village is what it is, right? It wasn't back in the 90s. Like there are people living there today, living in two bedroom apartments for like a few hundred bucks. Uh, like a few hundred bucks and and the clt model works because the clt was able to keep the land and and so it's like a non-profit that owns a deed to the land and so they're able to like there's no greedy landlords like jacking it up there's no there's like it eliminates a lot of that uh it's sort of like csa's for food it's kind of like the same thing for land and yeah. so um, I mean, they, they are benefiting right now from the fact that like they have uh, real like the bottom floor is like a commercial space so they can rent out commercial space to stores and use that money to subsidize all the costs of the building. So people that like and it's a you know, it's a very colored, uh, you know, if you look at the demographics, it's a lot of black and brown folks from um, from back then who are like able to live affordable lives, otherwise would be homeless or not be able to live in New York City at all. Um, because of the CLT model. The problem is now that like land is so expensive that it's really hard for a CLT to like buy a property. And so like, it's like, there's a lot of CLTs that have popped up in the last few years, uh, including the Western Queens CLT, which is the one that I'm a co-chair of. And we, you know, we're, we're like, we're slowly making inroads in the community and talking to elected officials, but like, we are nowhere near like owning a piece of property yet. Like it's just going to be a long, slow battle. And so like a good example more recently is like, there's a CLT in Harlem called El Barrio CLT down on the South, like right near the park, like on the Northeast corner of Central Park. On 110th street. Uh, yeah, around there. I forget exactly what street, but it's, it's around there. And they spent eight years trying to get the city to give them over a few buildings that were just like in bad shape. And the city finally turned them over like last year. And now they're going through the process of like figuring out like their economic model. Like how do they pay for these buildings? What are they going to charge for rent? Who are, how are they going to pick the people that like come, you know, from the community, but the whole, it's all hundred percent like super affordable housing and not like affordable housing the way right. like New York city calls the it. They're changing it. Yeah. A lot of people don't understand that affordable housing in New York city does not meet the income level of the people who actually live medium income is not matching affordable housing. That's it's right. Over. People think of affordable housing as people who are on welfare or people who live in projects. And that's not what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. That AMI is how they judge. Like they'll say this unit will have 50, you know, like it'll, we will offer 30 apartments at 50% AMI. Uh, 50 apartments at 80% AMI. And so you look at the AMI, which is the average medium income, and then you do the math and you're like, wait, like who can afford this? And plus the prices that they say match that income level, even if you do meet the requirements, then you look at the prices and you're like, that's not that cheap. Um, I mean, it's a little cheaper than market rate, but that's only because market rate is so crazy insane. You know, but in like the real world, like who can actually afford those those prices? Like not anyone who's struggling, you know, that's kind of why the CLT, these CLTs have been popping up. Um, it, there's like 12 or 13 of them now in, in New York, but like it's a long struggle. And so to go back to the tax lien sale 
that you were at, you know, that the article that you're asking about. So what happened there was <clears throat> we go back to uh, the late nineties when Giuliani was mayor. So what usually happens is like, let's say you own a house and you um, had a tough year. You can't come up with a few thousand, like whatever your, your um, property taxes is. Let's say it's like four grand or five grand and you just didn't meet that payment. So usually like in most cities and the way New York used to work is a city has to come and like collect, you know, and they'll send you like a bill and they're going to like come after you and uh, they're trying to collect, they'll work with you. And eventually if you really just stop paying and you just don't do anything, they'll fork, they'll put a lien on your home and they'll end up foreclosing eventually. And then they sell that foreclosed property in a lien sale. Well, Giuliani was like, that's too much for the city to be uh, dealing with. It's not really, like we shouldn't be doing that. So what he did is that his administration came up with another plan where the city sold it to the devil. <laughs> yeah, basically the city takes all that debt and sells it to this private trust um, mm. of like rich people. Basically it's like a private group who buys the liens at pennies on the dollar. Right. So for every dollar worth of debt, they're giving the city back some money and the city's like, well, better we get some and not have to worry about collecting the debt than like try to get all of it, you know, in case we get none of it. So this then this what these guys do is they take all that debt then they go after the people who owe money um except they will start adding fees they'll be like okay you owe this much but if you don't pay by this month now it's like you know another 20 percent or whatever and so very very quickly the amount that you owe gets higher and higher which only becomes harder and harder for you to like pay this and stuff. debt and you're like forever and of course ruining your credit <laughs> credit you know the whole thing and if you look at the people that are mostly victims of this big shocker, black and brown people and seniors, right? Because a lot of old people just, and a lot of times old people just don't know. They just like missed the, le they just had no clue. And then they don't know what to do. And these really, the really predatory ones like start to like, there's been cases where they like actually like basically get the uh, old people to like sign over the deed to their house, not realizing they're signing over the rights to their home. They think they're just being helped like with a payment plan. That's like on the most nefarious uh, level. Not everyone's like that, but these fees are definitely a common thing. And then what happens is the trust will hold on to, you know, now they own the house and then they'll wait till the neighborhood gets gentrified and the property values go up and then they sell them at a lien sale. Uh, and the people, the only people that can buy at a lien sale are the people that are on this list. So it's not like anybody, it's not like you or I could jump on and buy it. It's like, you have to be on the list and the list is mostly developers and people from the real estate industry. So like, I couldn't be like, Hey, give me on that list. Unless you knew somebody and like had some kind of a business or something. It's such a weird, you're like, how is this legal? And it's such a weird, you, you, the more you like learn about New York, the more you're like, man, like the old school, like dirty ways of a hundred years ago are still like the standard today. You kind of had this naive idea that like, I don't know, investigative journal journalism over the years cleaned up that kind of corruption. Now it's just as insane today as it is, as it was, you know, back in like the Tammany Hall days. I mean, nothing's really changed. And so like people are literally getting away with this shit, this, this, um, this trust. And so the good news is that the city council are the ones that have to, um, every few years they have to like revote that system in place. They basically just kind of rubber stamp it and said, yeah, we renew it for another five years or whatever. And so this coalition, we found out that like, um, you know, that renewal was coming up uh, last year. It was coming up at the end of last year. And so 
or maybe two years ago now, man, COVID really threw my time, my sense of time. I think it was two years ago. And so we started getting together and, and by we, a lot of like groups that are like in housing advocacy and CLTs are part of that. And so we started getting together and, and like coming up with like a campaign targeting all the different city council people in the city to like teach them about this. Cause most city council people don't even know everything I just told you, or that at least they didn't. Right. It was just like, they just were like, Oh, except for Kristen for Harlem, who we'll talk about later. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there was a few progressives that kind of had a clue, but a lot of people just didn't. And you know, when you're in city council, you have to know so many things. So it's like you, you find out like today on the docket, we're talking about this, this, and this, and you're not an expert on that. So you kind of just put your faith in like the speaker of the house who is like, you know, who used to be like de Blasio was the speaker of the house at one point. So like, so like you put your faith on whoever the speaker is and most people will just kind of follow the leader and be like, well, they're voting yay or nay on this. So I'll just do that. Unless you're like really educated on the thing. And of course there's some city council people that are really educated and they make it a point to really like serve the people that they represent. But a lot of them are just overwhelmed or don't care or whatever. Um, and so we kind of started having these like info sessions, like these zoom meetings and like sort of like telling them about this and offering an alternate way where like change the system where like the city takes over again. They just like every other city in this country, like reclaims like that process and if, and work with CLTs and other mission driven nonprofits so that first of all, we try to get these people out of debt, help them pay their, pay their fees so they can stay in their home. That's like number one. If for some reason they can't or they don't want to work with CLTs or for whatever reason and they end up not paying it and the city has to foreclose on them, then give CLTs first priority to get those homes so we can then like find ways to get loans to fund fixing and repairing the homes, paying off the debt. And then we can take that home and give it to a family at a permanently affordable rate. So what happens at that point is, and this is a little confusing, is like, the CLT owns the land, but they don't own the house. They only own the land and it's like it separates. And so if you own a house on a CLT land, it's your house. You can do whatever you want, just like any normal thing. You want to paint it. You want to build an addition, all the same stuff. If you want to give it to your kids. You can give it to your kids. But if you ever want to sell it, there is a locked affordability clause on that deed that says you can't just flip it and sell it for whatever the hell crazy amount is going market. You have, to which is important to keep the dynamic of a diverse community. Right, 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 right. And you can put in that deed, like you must prioritize black and brown or, or marginalized or whatever. Like you can put in the deed, like specifications of like, so that, like you said, if they're going to sell it, they have to prioritize the kind of people that can't usually afford a house. So if like, right. if like in 40 years, this, you know, I don't know who knows what the hell the market will be in 40 years, but like, let's say houses are going for 3 million, this house <laughs> has to go for 800 grand still or whatever was mm -hmm. locked in. Like, you know, it's, it's the math that you block into the deed. So like the CLTs, like all the CLT does is they keep you honest. So the CLT by owning the deed will make sure 50 years from now, that whoever your your kids or whoever is selling the house has to follow, you know, has to follow the, the CLT's existence is there to like keep the community honest. Um, and the CLT itself is made up of by law, by the way that the, our bylaws are written, the CLT is made up of like a, this tripartite board. So like only a third of the people in the CLT can be from like 
living on CLT property, only a third has to be from like the community and a third has to be from like experts, like academics and so on. And that's to keep checks and balances so that if- Yes, not to interrupt you because no, you, go God, you are letting people know some stuff, man. I mean, thank you because that is like, when I looked at the community board in Harlem, I'm like, there's some business owners up in here that shouldn't be in here. Right. Yeah, it happens a lot. They run the show and like, and you know, so like, the city's come up with affordable housing plans in the past. Like there's this one uh, program called Michelama, which is still kicking around. Yes. And you can get a Michelama apartment for real cheap. Um, the problem is that the people, this, so this is going back to like when nobody wanted to live in certain neighborhoods, right? And so they're like, here's some affordable, like working class apartments that you can buy. And people bought in and a lot of families that would not have been able to afford things had a nice apartment in the city. It was great. Then you fast forward to now when like even places like Astoria, Harlem, all these places that were traditionally not rich places um, are now like expensive. And the people in the building vote to get rid of the Michelama program and just flip it to market rate. And then they sell out and sell their apartments for a shit ton of money. And now that whole building that used to be affordable is like no more affordable. So the mm -hmm. CLT is there to like make sure that doesn't happen. There's not ever going to be enough people who can profit and benefit from selling the land that they can have a majority like vote. And so like, even if everybody got greedy on the people that were like profiting, that's only a third. And so the other two thirds can vote them out. So that's kind of the idea. I only, I only recently learned about that in Harlem from, um, cause I was talking to my friend Khalees, who's often on the podcast and she was like, yeah, it just looks affordable all of a sudden. I go, yeah, that's because it has, when you want to sell it, you have to understand you cannot make a profit. You have to sell it again at an affordable rate. And she goes, really? And I go, yes, that's be to keep Harlem, Harlem. Right, right. And at first I was upset about that because I was like, I will make some money <laughs> off of this property. But then I realized, oh, I see what's happening. They you you they're protecting, you know, Harlem's culture here. Yeah, I mean, so that's like you just kind of. Um, nail, uh, is that Khalees, Khalees Hawkins? Yeah, yeah I know Khalees. Uh -huh. I, yeah. I worked with her on a show way back. She's she's really cool. I love yeah, she's very smart. And she was recently looking for a home as well. And I had to explain that to her because I had started looking. It's not until it's again, it's not until you start really being involved in this stuff do you, that you become you see you see all of the corruption. Yeah, I mean, so you just hit and this is the biggest challenge that you just hit by saying what you just said, which is the ideological idea. Cause like we grow up in this country seeing everything as like a commodity, like you, everything is bought and sold. And land is one of those things. Like, you know, your parents would be like, buy land. It's just like, like a standard thing that you teach your kids. Like if you want to invest in anything, buy land, land is a thing that you should be buying. But that's like a pretty modern idea. It, it, it for most of humanity's existence, Owning land, the concept of owning land didn't even make sense. Like, how do you own land? It's like owning the air or owning water. And certainly, like, some cultures, like Native American cultures, even today, like, the, uh, it's so preposterous to even say the word, like, I own land. Like, it's just like, what do you even mean? And so, like, the CLT model or any of these kind of things, like what you're just talking about, like, the, the city program, you have to buy into the idea of giving up that idea that you can, like, get rich off of something. That that's like why you're doing it. And that's hard for a lot of people. They're like, wait, I've been spending my entire life trying to get rich or die trying or whatever. Now you're as you're asking me to like give that up 
for like the benefit of everybody. Like a lot of people are just not going to buy into that. But I think the more and more people end up on the bottom, the more and more people can be like, well, fuck that. I'll, I'll take that if it means like my family can like have a, a decent place to live and I'm not like worried about being homeless next year. So like, I think like, you know, the, it's like the pendulum swinging, but like, it's a, it's not going to be easy because we are, we've been ideologically trained from birth, you know, to believe in that, that like you can buy and own everything. And that's, you know, and everything's a commodity, right? It's like what I do, like my skills as a filmmaker, it's like, I'm in a marketplace to like sell them and my talents or even your jokes, right? Like your jokes that you write, they're, they're like tokens that you're trading in to pay your bills. And so like, it's like, it's, there's other ways to live well, on TikTok. <laughs> I get very little for it, but yeah. yes, right. Right. But then, right. But it, I mean, yeah, definitely. But it's like, you know, there's other countries where like governments pay artists to like do their thing. Like you're fun. You're not like thinking that everything you do has to have like a cash value. And so, um, so anyway, go, but going back to land, that's like kind of like the thing. It's like land, it's the CLT is basically like a reverse monopoly board where we're trying to like take land off of the board and just say it's community-based. You can't buy it and then trade it, the little card in later to somebody else for more money. You know, it's funny because I, I, I talk to people who I know in the comedy business who know about all this stuff and I, and they're friends of mine. And they own property and they know a lot of developers. I'm not going to say the person's name. And I remember them talking to me and they go, well, don't you think we deserve money? And they, they heard themselves and they go, oh, my God, I sound horrible. And I, I was like, yeah, you don't sound like you care about the average person. You sound very greedy. That's why I was so happy when Kristen... She stopped the development on 145th Street. But before we get to that, talk about Amazon and what you did with Amazon. Oh, uh, or you not you personally? <laughs> I saved it. But because I remember, <laughs> right. I remember, I remember seeing the story and the Congresswoman um, Cortez. Um, why yeah, am I forgetting AOC her name? Alexandria. AOC. And, you know, everyone gets mad at her because they're like, you know, when she talks, she's like, she's very angry. And you're like, come down. <laughs> but. You know, and I remember comedians telling me, oh, she just gets on my nerves. And I was like, but why does she get on your nerves? Do you know what she's even talking about? You don't know what she's talking about. And then I had a, a comic friend who was like, she got rid of jobs. Like Amazon was going to provide jobs for people and she got rid of it. This is like the Internet, like Google. Is Google going to come here now? They're afraid to come here. So explain why <laughs> yeah. that thought is moronic and uninformed. I mean, yeah, it's a controversial thing. And I understand people's anger about that. The funny thing is, first of all, AOC had almost nothing to do with the Amazon battle, like pretty much nothing. She she kind of not that she I mean, she didn't like jump on the bandwagon so much as like when she finally was asked about it, she gave her opinion and that's what made the headline. But she was not the person who was fighting Amazon. It really was a community. And like a lot of the CLT thing came straight out of my involvement with Amazon. And I was not in any way like a big player, but I was one of the many little drops, you know, that like together created this thing. And so like, um, you know, and by the way, we're the, we're the ones that voted AOC in. She's our, she's our district representative. So like, um, that was also a thing that we did with when we, um, were like, we don't want this Joe Crowley guy anymore. We're going to back this bartender up. And we like 
pushed her and we and we and we fought for her and like it, nobody thought i didn't think she was gonna win i just thought well you gotta try and then when she won i was like what so um it's crazy right but it's like it's one of the things that inspire me about this neighborhood about queens i'm like people here give a shit you know but the amazon thing was like i mean i personally when i first heard it i was like oh fuck like this is gonna bring i don't even know where to start like it's gonna make everything way more expensive for anybody who lives here is going to displace people. It's going to specifically displace all the, all the Hispanic communities, the black communities, everybody around. So, I mean, Amazon, most people maybe don't realize this, but like that the headquarters is going to be built like a foot away from the largest public housing project in the country, which is Queensbridge. So like, how is that not going to affect the folks of Queensbridge? And if you've ever been to Seattle, like I, I remember hanging out in Seattle in the 90s and I was like, man, this place is awesome. It's like really grungy and crazy. And then I went back to Seattle a few years ago and it is like this soulless, weird corporate downtown. And it's just like nothing but like business people and then a ton of homeless people. And like the difference is so in your face obvious. And Amazon, whose headquarters are there, is like easily the number one reason, not just because they moved in and like drove up prices, but then they literally many times like use their power to squash uh, like local government. Like uh, there was going to be like a tax that was going to basically make Amazon kind of help fund home the homelessness issue and like send money to the city to pay for all the homeless people that they've been creating. And like Amazon and it passed and then Amazon got them to reverse it. Like like they just use their political power locally because they can always threaten, well, we'll leave. And then all the politicians like, oh, shit, that means we're going to lose jobs. And and then they say, OK, we'll give you whatever you want. So like the idea that Amazon was going to bring jobs to it, it, it like there's so many so first of all the kind of jobs that were going to come were going to be tech jobs they're most of them right those tech jobs were going to be given to like highly educated mostly white people who did not live in the city so they would be coming in and li and this is pre-pandemic because if you think about it now where all those jobs are remote like what would even have happened if they had already built that thing? It would just be this empty shell. All these people would be like, fuck it. I'm not, why do I want to live in New York? I'm going to work remotely now. So like the pandemic has completely changed the landscape of what could have, you know, happened. All those jobs that people think would have been coming in and all the money that was going to be spent locally, like probably wouldn't even be local, but it would bring in a transient class of people who like, if you look at the, uh, the average tech worker at Amazon spends like one to two years and then they go get another job. So it'd be a very transient environment. It wouldn't be people that are moving in, having families, going to schools, investing in the community. It would just be people who are like here, they might like go hang out at like trendy bars and restaurants and a couple of years later move to Chicago, LA or some other place. And so like, it, it's not the, I mean, you can say jobs, but in reality, it's not jobs that have much root that then feed an ecosystem. Yeah, that this neighborhood. So what ends up happening is all these little small businesses end up dying um some businesses might profit but overall it's not a very healthy like ecosystem to sustain a community so then like like you start thinking about schools and the kind of schools that what's happened to the local schools around and so on and like the money just sort of gets sucked in that's not even to mention the things about like amazon as a company like how horribly unethical they are just in so many ways and so why would you want to they're like a yeah, virus. Yeah, I mean, it just gets worse. Like the way they treat their workers. And they should just call Amazon COVID. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, seriously, they're, I would say, worse than COVID. It's just crazy. Like, <laughs> they're just like, 
just on every level, right? From like the technology that you that that they've created that helped ICE like find facial recognition technology so they could actually like find immigrants and and like uh, find them and like deport them, which they're using Amazon technology. They'll like have their marketplace, they'll see who's doing well in the marketplace, copy their product cheaper, undersell them, and then put that company out of business so that they can sell Amazon shoes or Amazon. I mean, it's just like on every level, they want to take over the world. Why would you want to work with someone like that? Like, why would you want to be like, yeah, come in, like, you're going to be a good neighbor, like, they don't care about you, or they don't care about any, you know, and it's fine. Like, that's their prerogative to not give a shit. But why are there's a sort of like, base idea that like you're just supposed to like help them not to mention that's because people they don't understand what you've just explained yeah it's hard you know what i mean because i during the pandemic even i was like i remember pat brown who we've had on the podcast several times go let's boycott amazon i was like nah i need my (laughs) groceries delivered and so that e- that access, that ease, that laziness, let's just say, or or that fear of not having food, you know, or access to food, they really. Right. And I don't blame people. They they play. Yeah, upon I mean, it. I don't. You know, like a lot of people, they're like, "Well, it's the cheapest place I can get shit, right?" And it's like you can't blame a person for thinking that way when they don't have a ton of money. Just so you know, uh, Stace, she's responding to you. She said, that's so true. Seattle, San Fran and Denver. We're seeing the centers of our cities transforming to housing for wealthy folks and encampments for unhoused people. So who is really benefiting from all those jobs? Memo is nailing it. Many of these big tax firms are contributing to the growth Growing income divide, undercutting small businesses and using our data in many cases against us and local and state governments are incentivizing them to the detriment of the majority of citizens. Yeah, no, she's completely, uh, I mean, she bringing up big tech is such a a whole nother connected issue, right? That like our government needs to start regulating that in ways and it's not doing it. And, um, I'm more scared of them than like, like that's like the future to me. That's like the big brother we need to be paying attention to is like meta and Google and Apple and Facebook, you know, like all and Amazon. I mean, like they have so much power. They have so much power. Amazon owns literally physically owns a hardware that a huge percentage of the internet is on. Like they could, the physical hardware, like uh, tons of, the US government uh, security uh, data is on Amazon servers, like they've made deals with the government. So like the Department of Defense runs on an Amazon server. It's not like a public server. Wow. So that's scary shit. If they decided to one day just be like, fuck y'all, like, there's nothing we could do to there's nothing the military could do to stop them because they have a lock on the inf- information control like they there is nothing the u.s could do like they would realize how like how are you going to like tell the military to do whatever when you can't even communicate because the communication systems are owned by these private companies so like it's scary and sure you're like we can think like oh that'll never happen and maybe it won't but the day that it's more convenient for the day they decide it's better for us to do this instead of do this. There's nothing that stops them. And like right now is a good time to, you know, John Oliver had a really good uh, like show on that a few weeks ago, if anybody wants to watch the big tech episode. And he called out Chuck Schumer, who's our Senator, you know, who could easily call for a vote this summer 
to vote on these on this legislation, which, by the way, has tons of support on both Republican and Democrat side. So it's not even like some lefty controversial thing. It's like a mainstream thing that like senators. Um, what do they call that? Partisan? Yeah, bipartisan support. Right. Yeah, it has it has bipartisan, bipartisan. support. Right. That's the official term. <laughs> and like um, and Schumer. But Schumer has two daughters who work for Meta and Amazon. But like one's like a lobbyist and one's like a marketing something. So he's got like personal reasons not to like, you know, st so you're just I mean, that's the thing. Like, it's just like everybody's the connections and the corruption and the ties and the politics. You know, it makes people sometimes it makes people just be like, well, fuck this. Like, you can't win. Like, I, they got the whole thing locked up. But then for me, it's like where I focus on the local stuff, you know. I think that's what's what you said to me is going to change where I live is that you said you realized your community cares about what happens to its community. Like I, a lot of people are finding homes like I often joke about <laughs> Vermont, but I find that Vermont people are very active in their community and care about their community. That's why I guess I've been pulled in that spiritual direction, even though they're mostly white, which I plan <laughs> on fixing. But in that way, I sometimes in Harlem would, it's not any fault of any Harlemite, but I find that they have been abused so much and so much has, you know, they've gone through so much and the pains of gentrification, they are not reaping the benefits of gentrification whatsoever. I don't see it. I see 50% of Harlem is not black anymore. It was a black yeah. neighborhood. You know, and Latino, Latinx. Yeah. You, you can say Latino, that's neighborhood fine. as well. <laughs> I'm good. I'm down with that. Thank you. I know there's a, I know, but I just say it just in case, but I know that even Latinos aren't okay right. with Latinx. I, I know that story too, but I'm looking around. I was telling the cable guy who was even in my apartment today. I go, he goes, yeah, gentrification. I go, but do you understand how it's happening? He doesn't. He doesn't really understand the the cable that he's putting into my house actually is a part of the gentrification. My access to talking to you right now is part of the gentrification. My access to cable, yeah. Internet, my ability to communicate. Don't even understand the displacement that has already happened because yeah, it makes you know, me it furious. Be. Yeah, no, the no. Deception. You, I mean, I, more people should be furious about that because then maybe like we do something about it as a, as a city. I mean, that's the thing. The city... We could like New York could be such a great city and like most people have this. We're all in the same boat. Like most people have the same basic needs and issues and problems. You know, just, they just want to afford a place to live. They want to afford a place to work. I mean, it's like we're all there's not that much difference really in terms of like our basic needs. So there's no reason why we shouldn't have a city government that is like representing that. I mean, there's no reason except that the real estate industry like has that whole thing under lock and key. And every time we have a mayor, you know, mayoral race, it's like, they're like, here's some shitty options. And people are like, okay, I'll pick one of the shitty options. <laughs> and it's like, why? There's no reason for that, right? There's why it's a small enough place. It's not like the, we're talking about the entire country. I mean, New York's a big place, but still it's a microcosm of a much larger society. Like there's no reason why we shouldn't be like, no, we want this woman or this guy or whoever who like is from us, but it never happens every, every four years. I'm always blown away by like, those are the choices. Like that was the best we could do. It's just amazing. Um, the, the, 
So Mayor yeah, Adams, no, he, what I mean, is your, uh... I mean, he sucks. I mean, he's yeah, but I knew he was bad even before. It wasn't. This is not a surprise at all. That like you know, it's like he comes. He's he's being the guy that you knew he was going to be if you had even watched how he was acting in his career. Like it's. I, I oh, liked yeah. him at first, <laughs> believe it or not, because I hadn't right, right, done right. the homework. Well, that, I mean, and I don't, you know, that's the other thing is like, I don't, our press doesn't do the homework. Like, it, like our press should be like putting this shit out like front page, right? Like, here is the truth about these people. Like, let's call them out. Why did you not do this? Or why did you do this? Or why, you know, um, like the press doesn't do that. Even local press doesn't. That's their job. That's like, we used to have that. I think from what I've read, like New York used to have a really active, like journalistic sort of like group of, of uh, local press that like really took people to task and really exposed things and said, this is happening. And I, I just see like, it's very rare that I'm like reading something that I'm like, Oh my God, like, yeah. Like, like how, I didn't know about that. Like, it's just, it is frustrating. So it's like, so why would you know, like we're all busy working and hustling and doing whatever. You don't have time to sit there and do the research. I mean, maybe you do sometimes or, but like the average New Yorker doesn't. And so like, it's really the job of the press to be pushing that. Like, that's why we have you guys. And, and they don't do that. So then it ripples down. Like so every time you go to the, ba- I don't know, it happens to me every time you go to vote and you're like, who are these people? Who am I saying? And it's like pick three, you know? Oh, I thought you were going to say every oh. time you go to the bathroom. <laughs> that too. The news. Yeah. And you're like, what's going on? <laughs> but you're saying every time you vote. Yeah, I, you're right. I'm like, who are these people? Oh, my God. OK, here we go. But then I feel really bad. So it's but it's just like by design. So like I was a judicial delegate last week for Queens County. Like I was I was actually on the ballot. I didn't realize I was going to be on a ballot. Someone asked me if I wanted to be a judicial delegate. And I was like, sure. And then like when the primaries happened and people were like, hey, you're on the ballot. And I was like, what are you talking about? And it was true. I voted for myself, which is crazy um, to be a judicial delegate this year. And all that means is this is like low level politics. But all it means is um, the Supreme Court of of New York State. Like you have to pick, you have to nominate um, judges, right? They could get nominated and then they go to the ballot and people will vote for them in November. But uh, the Queen's Supreme Court nominations are chosen, are, are, are chosen by the delegates who like nominate X number. So there's in Queens, there's three free seats. So now I'm like, great, this is an interesting, I want to learn about this. I'm always like, how do you pick these people? I never hear about them. So let's find out. So you go, first of all, they don't tell you anything until like a week or two before. And they're like, there's going to be a meeting on this date way out in Eastern Queens, like way out there, not easy to get to. Um, uh, so hopefully you can make it. And if you can't, whatever, but you're a delegate, so you should make it. So already they're like self, like they're trying to make it as hard as possible for delegates to be there. Then you go and you're in a room of about a couple hundred people who are all delegates. The meeting is called to order. So Congressman Meeks is the official, uh, Gregory Meeks, he's like the official, uh, like the, the chairman of the, of the delegates, basically. So he's there, he gives a big speech, they start the meeting. And then the whole thing is just people standing up and reading pieces of paper that they were handed, saying, I'd like to nominate this person. And then someone else stands up and says, I second that nomination. And then, and then they're like, okay, the eyes, the, the nays, okay, nominated. And then someone else, it, the whole thing has been like pre-planned. So no one ever like gave you any information on who these people are. Apparently there is like a list of like 19 people 
um, of which like a couple days before, like someone in like the group that had asked me to join, like finally got like their names. So they had like their resumes, but the resumes don't tell you anything about how they voted. Like, did they vote and like, you know, did they sentence black people to jail for carrying pot? Right. Did they like defend like women in like a abuse case or did they like let the guy go? For, like, we don't know how their voting record is. And these guys are going to be deciding to the Supreme Court of the state. So they're like any cases that go up and bubble up to the Supreme Court of the state, they're going to be deciding on. And we have no idea how they voted. And you're supposed to then nominate wow. three people that have already been pre-chosen by the party bosses um, based on like a lot of it is like campaign donations and things like that. And then, and like, so the whole thing is like this farce where you're just like, nobody, there was no like, Hey, let's talk about this or let's debate or, or like, does anyone have any, no one handed you information to give you like a, like a bi little bio. It's, there's nothing. You're just like, you go, you say I, and then you leave and you eat some food and like have a glass of beet wine. Like it's, it's that <laughs> ridiculous. And then like Meeks gives his big speech at the end about democracy and the greatest country in the world. And, and I'm like, this is the most undemocratic thing I've ever witnessed in my life. And you're talking about democracy and how great we are it's crazy and this is like low level you know democratic party and yet even in that low level it's already insanely corrupt and you're just like so the whole reason i was asked to go is that there's a group called the new reformers who are kind of like a left-leaning democratic party group who are trying to shed light on all this and, and make it more transparent and more open so this was kind of like the first year just to even see what the hell was going on and i think the idea is to try to get it out to the press and talk about it, you know, like I'm talking to you and get people aware that like, there's nothing democratic about even our tiniest, smallest, like process here in New York. And like, cause people should be involved, right? Like you should know who these people are and you should have an opinion and you should be voicing your opinion on this judge and be like, this person did this shit. Like we should nominate her or him or whatever, but none of that is happening. And so like, that just keeps rippling all the way up to mayor, all the way up to, I mean, it's just like the same thing. It's like, it's all happening and being decided by a few people in the back room who got money from this donation or that donation and are calling in favors. And we're just kind of sitting here, like looking at our ballot in November going, all right, I'll check this guy. And I'll, you know, it's such a joke. And like, I don't blame anybody for being like, fuck this. I'm not going to bother voting. Like, I don't blame anyone. The power of a podcast, though. Yeah, it's true. It's true. <laughs> Just to bring it <laughs> yeah, back yeah. to why you need to listen to podcasts. Yeah, it's true. Because it's not controlled by a company. Yeah. And you get to hear this, the, the information you're not getting in the news. Yeah. No, it's true. Podcasts are like a wonderful thing that have popped up and, and you hope it like is able to counter all that noise. Um, I love it. Stacy's clapping at you. <laughs> Thanks, Stacy. <laughs> so like and that's why you you see like i i it started from a noise problem for me right and then i began to figure out okay who do i go to about the noise and then they had the owner of the comedy cellar tell me go to your community board i go community board what i'm a comic then i go to the community board i see these people on here and I present and I go, wait, this is, doesn't feel right. There, something seems to be skewed for the businesses, not for the community. It's called the community board. Then I find out, oh, community boards were designed by business owners. Oh, so by design, it's already corrupt. Yeah. Then I, then I, I find who the members are. 
and I find one of the owners of the restaurants that I'm actually up against is a part of the block association, the president even. And I'm like, oh, I see what's happening now. And she's white in Harlem. But the community has no, and then the community, on the community board, some of them are black members. I, I find they've been there for a long time. There's, there's backdoor deals. There's a lot going on. Yeah. Now they've restructured the community board because this new woman, Kristen for Harlem, I say it every time, she's very left, Kristen Richardson. You gotta follow her and see what she's done. While Harlem could have had 458 affordable apartments, now I put affordable in quotations because we know now that affordable doesn't mean affordable for everyone in Harlem. For the demographic that lives in Harlem, it is not affordable. Developers pulled their zoning application needed for the mixed use project after Councilwoman Kristen Richardson Jordan rejected it as not affordable enough. It could have been the most affordable of its kind ever built in Harlem. This is from this article. You know, notice how they 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 right. write. I'm like, mm-hmm, yeah, right. It could have been the most affordable. Yeah, no, it wasn't. The 917 unit plan for West 145th Street is no more as rezoning applications are time limited. The developers would need to start the year-long process all over again. However, it is unlikely that Councilwoman Jordan will change her perspective on the development. This is like letting all of these contractors, this is like, look what she's doing. So we got to protect her. Unless the council makes an exception, any application in her district for the next four or eight years will require her sign off. Good. Given Jordan's hard line, it's conceivable that the developers may reconsider building an entry market rate project under the current zoning. Jordan sent developers an email breaking down the affordability of the last ditch proposal. No racial impact study had been done for the project, though there is no history of them being done for single projects in the city. However, the council requires them uh, last year for neighborwide rezoning okay that wasn't written right See, no no now. it's good but so that's that's true so like so like they never do a racial impact study and they like rarely do an environmental impact study of like how that new building is going to infect impact and environmental doesn't just mean like like air and water it also just means like like sewage right things that like people then complain about like the sewage is backing up or like the amount of bodies and how does that affect like uh, transportation, like subway stops and like the, the crowding on trains. So like, there's a lot of things that you have to think about and those developers rarely like give you a good explanation of that. Or like, if you're gonna have all those new people, how many new schools are you gonna build to like accommodate all those new kids that are gonna be popping up in those new apartments? And it's usually like, oh, you know, so they leave all that to the city and they're just like, we just want to fill these apartments, you know, and like, it's your problem to figure out all the other stuff. Uh, but they gloss over all that. And unless like people are like really on the ball or in like your case, you have a great uh, council representative. Um, often they are able to steamroll over it because, you know, the, like you said, the community board is like, sure, because they're all business people uh, and it just messes everybody up. They were um, they they didn't back this yeah one. no that's awesome that's great we have a similar thing in in queens uh, in astoria this innovation queens proposal that's the same thing and it's like affordable housing and you look at the numbers and you're like wait what and uh it's just more luxury 
And it's going to displace like a lot of the immigrant communities around there. It's pretty crazy. And this was supposed to be Harlem's first skyscraper, so to speak. <laughs> um, so it ain't going to be scraping no skies. <laughs> no, it's, uh, that's great. I mean, that's, a, that's a, a rare victory, but it makes me happy to to hear that. The the guy, so even for funny, is that guy who's like the developer for that project that you're in the article you just read. His name is Bruce Teitelbaum. He owns some land right next to the building that are the reason our, our CLT formed and like our biggest project which comes back to the Amazon battle that you're asking about when the building, when finally Cuomo, I mean, I mean, Amazon pulled out and Cuomo was like, come back. And they were like, no. And the whole thing died. Um, that building that Cuomo was going to give to Amazon is a public building. It's a department of education building in Long Island city, right by the water, like a block away from the water. That building is huge. It's like 600,000 square feet. And right now the department of ed, uses about a third of it and like two thirds are just kind of like being used for storage. And it, I mean, it's like they use it here and there, but it's not really being utilized properly. It's a giant building. It could ha do so much good in the community with that building. So the reason we created a CLT or the, the main first project that inspired us to create a CLT was to convert that building into a community space where you could have a food co-op, a rooftop farm at the top, um, parking garages for street vendors, because street vendors um, by law are supposed to park their little push carts in a, in a street cart garage. And Long Island City has lost a lot of those over the years because of gentrification. So they can't afford to park it in any, there's like no place for them to park. Um, and it also has a huge commercial kitchen because if you're a street vendor, you can't like be cooking your food on the cart. You have to do all the food prep in an official commercial kitchen, which always costs money. So like there's all these things that make it really hard for a street vendor to, to like succeed. And so this building would have all of that for them in the bottom, plus the food co-op. Um, it also have a tons of artist studio spaces, like podcasting studios, music studios um, for like people around the community. Uh, I mean, there's just like a whole bunch of stuff and we like partnered with, we've worked with a whole bunch of different nonprofit groups over the last couple of years and community groups and individuals with ideas, um, to feed all that in to create. And we got a grant to get an architect to redesign the building. We have the whole thing. Anybody can download it off the, our website, which is wqclt.org. And so you can read the whole proposal. It's like to convert that building into like a giant community hub. Um, and the biggest part of that is or one of the biggest part of that is that like i was saying queensbridge is like just down the street and they're the ones that have been suffering the most from all this gentrification there's like a food desert they have no healthy places to eat so imagine having like a shuttle bus that can bring seniors from queensbridge down to the building to do all their food shopping and get uh, like fresh local affordable uh produce from like a, a co-op right um, things like that, or like music studios, like Queensbridge, it's like one of the homes of hip hop, you know, Nas came out of there. A lot of people have come out of there. Like imagine music studios. There's a whole movement of young people doing hip hop that I met over the last couple of years doing like, like they great beats and rhymes and they, they don't have a place to record. They don't have, I mean, they probably doing it in their bedroom on their phone or whatever, but they don't have like a studio. So imagine like a studio, they could come in and like truly like craft like songs, albums, whatever. Like there's so many things that that building could benefit. Um, and so many projects, so many people. And, uh, so we're kind of pushing for that, but in all of that, I've like realized, like you were saying with like the community board that like, 
you know, there's a big divide between like the older African-American population and the younger African-American population. And so the, like the young people hit a wall against with their own community of like people just fighting that, you know, they're, and so they're so conservative and they're so like pro-police versus anti-police. There's like so many. Because they don't, they, they're, the fear gets in the way of the solution. Right. Yeah, exactly. And so for Amazon, the, uh, there's a guy named P- Bishop Taylor who runs a, a nonprofit called Urban Upround. And he's sort of like, has become the de facto speaker of like the black community there. He's really corrupt. And so like he, you know, they got his vote right away for the Amazon building. He's like, this will be great. You know, I, they, I'm sure they offered him whatever to be like, so he was verbally supportive and he was, and he was a big thing. But then if you actually went into the community and spoke to people, people did not agree with him. And, and it's not just Amazon. This has happened a lot in Queens is like, he'll make this grand statement or the tenants association will make some big thing where they like, they will officially sign on some thing, some development as like the Queensbridge Tenant Association so that the developers can be like, we got the black people vote. Like we got it right here on paper. Like they, That's you right. know. Yeah, they had Al Sharpton for this one at first. <laughs> oh, wow. And they were going to put, they were going to put a, a, a historical black museum underneath it. Right. There you go. So they, And then they were going to put some of the black people who don't exist anymore. That's what they're going to put in that museum. Right, right. In memory. Motherfucker. Sorry. I get so mad. Go ahead. No, go no, you, memo. you're right. This is so awesome. Thank you. You're Keep right. Going. No, it's a, it's the same thing. It's a, you speak. The more I've gotten to know folks from the community, the more I realize how they have no voice. Like their own people like sell them out and they and the and they right. don't have a voice to actually. And you talk to them and they're like, total disagreement but it doesn't matter because they've been marginalized by their own people never mind all the rich white people that are trying to screw you over so it's a very you know the only the the silver lining is that they're like fighting back and they're like and they're like starting to organize and they're starting like do shit and so on and i want this clt to like be a part of that and like give them whatever like backup that they can to do their thing and like one cool thing that's come out of this is that there's a department of sanitation garage in uh, ravenswood which is another uh, community in Queens, right up, up the street from Queensbridge, you know, which is black and Hispanic, mostly predominantly. And, uh, this, now this sanitation garage has been there forever and it's been polluting the soil and the air. Cause all of the city's like dump trucks have been coming in and out. And, and I don't even know like garbage trucks. I mean, have been coming in and out for, for decades. The soil is like crazy polluted the air. You can talk to people that have been there for their whole lives and they'll tell you crazy stories about when they were kids and they'd be playing in the muck and all this shit. They, you talk about cancer causing like this is like right and of course it's been dumped in a black neighborhood which is what always happens and so the city's finally closing it down and so we as a clt like approach ravenswood and we're like what do you want to see done with this thing like we want to help you like fight for that from the city and and get the city to give you that building um so we had these visioning sessions with folks um this is all during covid by the way so it's really hard to do all of this because like COVID made everything really hard, but eventually this really amazing group of, uh, of young people from Ravenswood were like, not only do we want to see this as our vision, we want to create our own CLT. We don't want to be a part of your CLT. No offense, but we don't want to be part of your CLT. We want to have a hundred percent Ravenswood run owned CLT for this building. And, uh, and we're going to run it and we're going to, you know, cause we've had for entire lives, other people making, been making decisions for us. And we just want to make this our own thing. 
And we were like, great, <laughs> that's awesome. So now there's a new CLT that's opened up, like the Ravenswood CLT that we we're like sort of brothers and sisters with. And they're going to take hopefully that project and turn it into like a community owned space. I mean, again, right now, these are pipe dreams that we're talking about. You know, nothing's been yeah. set in stone, but you have that passion. And I hope in 10 years, I can come back and be talking to you about like this amazing new building that like finally is here and like hundreds of people are benefiting it. You know, I don't know, but that's like the hope. That's that's why we're here. That is why we're here on Friends Like Us. <laughs> now, I um I do want to ask you this about your work with um, Sesame Street. Yeah, it's a whole nother thing. Yeah, this is turning out to be one of the best episodes ever. I'm not lying. This is going to be your biggest rating right here. This is it. Now, <laughs> it is. It should. It's like it's inf it's the point of the podcast is to inform people of what you can do for yourselves and for your environment. Sesame Street. Now I have a, I don't know how to pronounce. Um, ro ro oh yeah. The Rohingya. Yeah. Rohingya, which is a story that, I mean, my God memo. When I read, I, it's just, I, I did. I'm so ignorant. I mean, no, you know what? I didn't know much about them either. So don't feel bad. I'm sure there's a, most people, and again, this goes back to our press, right? It's like there's other big news stories and they're like, well, these other people don't matter so much. So we're not going to cover them, you know, which is horrible. But it's just the, it's like, you know, you're, you don't know. You're, you're scanning through your like headlines or whatever. It's not going to pop up unless like, I mean, it is. And this is like, man, the racism, you know, like the what's happening in the Ukraine is terrible, obviously. And there's a lot of Ukrainian refugees and we need to help them. But when you compare the amount of press that white Ukrainian refugees have gotten versus all the dark brown refugees from all the other things that have been happening in the last few years. It's not even, there's no comparison how much love they've gotten versus how much love, you know, and you're just like, it's ridiculous that we have to be talking about it in that way. Like everybody deserves our help and our compassion and so on. But like, it's just so endemic of like how our countries and our press and the media and everybody like still to this day, are going to play up, you know, by a economics and b skin color, you know, like both of those things. And it's like the, the Ukrainians get so any, and, and this is not in any way to trash Ukraine. It's just to point out like our failures, you know, as like everybody else. So like the Rohingya. Haitians. Yeah. It's like, yeah. what are we doing with Haiti? We just stopped right. talking about it. They're still, they're still in trouble over there. So tell them what you've done with um, the the puppets on Sesame Street. I think this is incredible. The video that I saw where you're, the the puppets are saying their names and saying it right. Like you see how I can't pronounce things. So it's really important. I mean, I always I always try to get things right. But. Yeah, well, that was different. So, yeah, so so sometimes I play the role of director. I direct things there and sometimes I'm a producer there. And so the that the names video is actually like one of the cool it's one of my favorite things that i've been able to direct because it was um they wanted to do a song about names right about how everybody has different names and yeah pronouncing them and they're all different from different um cultures and so on but they're all your name and it's all and i have the you know my name is memo right which in the states is a weird name and i've grown up here my whole life I mean, I grew up in Mexico as a kid, but when I moved here, my whole life since I moved here 
has been people mispronouncing my name, going Mimo and like, or not knowing what to say. And like, it's, I'm used to it. It doesn't bother me. I'm just like, whatever, like, you know, but like, it is true that like, like Americans as a whole don't have to bother learning people's names because they're Americans. They're like, oh, whatever. And, uh, and then the rest of the world has to like get their shit right when it comes to learning English and so on to stay competitive in this American controlled sort of market. And so this music video, not that it went into any of that, but like just on a very basic kid level is about like getting kids to like understand that like there's every there's names all over and and it's cool to like learn how to pronounce them and so on. And it's really fun. And uh and I just sort of so I get to direct the video. So I was the one that came up with how do we take this song and make it a fun visual and like working with the puppeteers on that was like those guys are amazing and awesome and fun and so creative and so it was just like the coolest day that was a great day it was like that video and then we did a juneteenth video and that's for the kids for for um who are dealing with refugee refugee these are refugee children who get to watch these videos yeah, well, this, this was for everybody. This was like a <laughs> the refugee, the, the Rohingya thing is that so Sesame. So we all know like the TV show. We've all grown up with the TV show. And that's like one part of what Sesame does. But then there's an entire international side where they have been for many years working all over the world, creating or working with local production companies in these different countries to create like a local, like culturally relevant for that country or region like version of sesame street and they have some of the characters that we know like elmo and cookie monster and then they have a lot of like local puppets that were like created for that region and so and they've been doing this forever but it's it's to me it's like my favorite part of like what they do because it's so cool and interesting and it's like it's a humanitarian the whole thing is this humanitarian effort and they get grants and they're like constantly trying to get because you got to find money somewhere so they're getting grants so they got a grant from the lego foundation to um, create uh, a specific, to work with this nonprofit NGO called BRAC, B-R-A-C, to specifically create programming for the Rohingya population. And so the Rohingya are a Muslim, ethnically Muslim group in Burma, the country of Burma slash Myanmar, who ever since the military takeover of the government of Burma years ago have been um, persecuted because of their beliefs. It's ironic that the government is Buddhist and and the Buddhists are attacking the Muslims. Um, I don't, I wouldn't say they're very Buddhist, but then again, like the Christians in this country aren't very Christian. So it's not that surprising. And so like, um, so the, the military run government has basically like genocided this group out of Burma. And so, and to put it, to make it explicit, the story that I read, throwing children, babies into fire. OK, that's what we're talking about. Whereas this is not like, you know, this is a story you don't hear, which was horrifying. No, you're right. And Stacy pointed out that, yes, so, so it was crazy because there was this uh, activist who fought the military government, eventually got elected. And she's now just as bad. She's like carrying out. She's continuing this persecution like she went from being like the good lefty sort of like progressive woman of the people to like running the government and and being just as bad as the people that they over. It's like Animal Farm. It's like if you read Animal Farm, it's literally like that's the story. And so it which is heartbreaking because people were so they had their hopes up. They're like, finally, 
this is it. This is a change. And it was like not a change. It was just more of the same. And so, um, and so the largest number of refugees ended up crossing the border into Bangladesh and the Bangladeshi government gave them this big space in an area called Cox's Bazaar to have like a, a camp, a refugee camp. <laughs> and so there's like over a million people in this refugee camp who are been there for a few years now and are growing up. Um, the kids are growing up, you know, without like a school system, without any kind of formal education. And so nonprofits are coming in and trying to help, but like, you know, it's, they're just doing whatever they, they're putting band-aids wherever they can. And so, um, the Lego foundation gave Sesame a bunch of money along with BRAC to work together to, so BRAC has been creating these things called play labs, which are kind of like schools slash daycare centers where the kids come and spend like a part of their day and they can play and they can learn and they can kind of hang out. And Sesame is providing like a whole like video series for them to like learn basic things that most kids learn you know, you know, just by going to school and so on, like math I and science. I learned a lot from just sitting in front of the TV with Sesame <laughs> Street. So thank yeah. God for that. No, it's true. We all, yeah, man, me too. Me too. Especially English and so on. Like it's, you know, it was a big thing. And so, um, so these are five minute episodes are animated. They're five minute animated episodes with the characters that we know, like Elmo and, and Cookie Monster and Grover. And then some of the new characters from other, other parts of the world. And then they created these two, this, these gorgeous little Muppets named Nora and Aziz, who are Rohingya kids. And by the way, Rohingya, there's no written language. Rohingya is a spoken language only. So um, trying to figure out how to do, you know, we're doing these videos in English that are then going to get dubbed into Rohingya, but you have to make sure they're culturally appropriate for where you're making them for. So like we work with all these global advisors to make sure like we're being relevant and also respectful to the Rohingya culture of which we know nothing about, right? Like, what do we know? Um, and so we're creating the F and we're trying to make it fun. So the part of it is like, make it educational, but also make it fun, which is, that's the whole point of Sesame Street. It's not like a boring dry thing. It's like funny and goofy and you're writing jokes and packing stuff in there. Um, and so there's going to be 140 of these five minute episodes that these kids are getting, plus these little Norn Aziz like intro and outros. And Norn Aziz like make it very relevant to the kids because they look like the kids. Their environment looks like a play lab that the kids are in. So it's very much like this is for you. Like we made this for you. So it's really exciting to, I mean, I've been working on it for two years and they're finally piloting the program this fall and they're going to start rolling them out in uh, across the camps. And then these same episodes are now starting to go in other places. So there's um, a South African Sesame Street called Takalani Sesame. And these episodes are showing in there. And they're also in this um, Sesame got another grant a few years ago to create a Middle Eastern Sesame called Ahlan Simpson, which is for the Syrian refugees. And so they're going to these are now playing in like the Syrian refugee uh, like shows as well. So it's like they're kind of spreading everywhere. And it's really cool. Like I never thought in a million years this is what I'd be doing with my time. And I'm I'm very thankful that and uh, that I can do. But it's like as a supervising producer, it's like you work with the writers, you're working with the animators, you're working with. The, I mean, you're like overseeing the whole thing. And so like every part of it is fascinating to me, and and every part of it is like a fun, creative, 
it's just crazy. It's like you're bringing all your skills, you know, all, all the things I've done with with Just Gal, right? That imagine of Just Gal's like oh, terrible, you know, all the jokes, all the old jokes. <laughs> just Gal has his purpose. <laughs> yeah, like you know all those old gags, all those old sitcom gags that he loves so much that you're just like rolling your eyes. So, but they're so perfect for this. So I know there's probably a little Just Gal that's like influenced his way into like the comedy that I'm doing, the slapstick and so on. I'm like, what awesome. and so on. That's incredible. Yeah, it's great. I love it. It's great. But that's like, that's been like my day job apart from all the other crap. This, that's like what I do on a daily basis. I love it. I, and that's why it's been so like, we're so grateful to have you here today to show like, you don't have to get overwhelmed. You just have to figure it out. And, you know, at the end of the day, your life s starts to culminate into this very active place for the world. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. But I think that is great. You know, you should run for, well, <laughs> the things you're, the, I see why people put you on the ballot like that. I, <laughs> I see why. But I think like the work that you're doing is very necessary. And, and you know, thank you, Memo. No, I, I, and honestly, thank you. And thank, it, it's not like, I mean, I look, you know, it's like we're, I'm talking to you and I'm, and, and, and it's like, oh, yeah, you do a lot. Like I'm involved in all these things. But like, it wasn't that long ago that I wasn't doing any of this. And I was like, how do people do that? You know? And the truth is, it's just like, it's kind of like what you said. It was like the noise complaint made you go to the community board and that opened your eyes to the community board. And so on. it was the same with me. It was like, I Oh, I'll be president. <laughs> I hope, I hope you'll be president. Yeah. I hope you run for anything. It would be great. Honestly, we need more people to run and shit and do stuff. Yes. You know, I, I'm a thousand percent behind anything you want to do. Like, it's like, it's, um, you just start like learning and then like something that seemed like it was like someone else's world starts to become your one. You're like, Oh, it's actually not that hard to get in there. I just had to take that first step. And then that became a second step. And now it's like four steps in. And then next, thing you know, you're like, Oh, this, I totally get this now. I'm part of this, you know? It's anyone can do it. And I, like everyone should do it. Like that's what if I were to run, right? If I were to run for mayor, the number one thing I would I would focus on would not be I mean, I would try to do things and change things, but like the number one my number one goal would be to educate New Yorkers and like open up like the transparency of like how things work. And and like so that if you're done four years later, at least you could leave knowing that New Yorkers had the tools to change things themselves. Right. It was less about like vote for me and I'll do this and more about like, here's how things work. Here's how you can get involved with this. Uh, you don't like the city bike program. Here's how you can like be a part of it or you love it and want to make it better. Here's how you can be a part of it. Like I hear com people complaining about things on both sides and it's like, great. The city bikes, by the way. Oh, I mean, there's so many issues, <laughs> but and I and I ride city bikes, but I saw the city bike in front of a building that needed help. In front of like, um, what do they call it um, in New York City? The projects are called, what is it called? Um, that needed. NYCHA. Are you talking about NYCHA? NYCHA. Yeah. Thank you. NYCHA. They got a like, city, they got a whole row of city bikes just set up. They put that up right away. Right. But NYCHA can't get its act together. Yeah. It's incredible to me. Fix, don't, don't put a, don't put an, an, uh, a Starbucks where the community needs help like fix the community first then you can do all the stuff you know we do need coffee yeah <laughs>
Yeah. But it's like you you can't suburbanize an area that's not. Yeah, no, just, no, you're you're absolutely me. right. And it's like it's that's like a, the reason I brought city bikes is because like I see a lot of controversy around them and I ride bikes and I think we need a public bike system. But if you look yes. at city bikes, a it's not a public bike system. It was it's owned by Lyft and it yes. was started by Citibank. And like somehow they get free advertising for the rest of eternity because they started the program like why is that and then like you said like it's amazing they're just sticking them everywhere and it's like well what about all the people who i mean it, it you're absolutely right how about the streets, right, the streets how about themselves. the potholes i yeah. saw like you 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 put city bikes in areas where you haven't fixed the roads by the way right. so you've got a really dangerous situation i mean i i hate to be gloom and doom no but you're right i saw a girl like just bouncing up i fell off you know, myself, but it's like, but that was also because I was going too fast. But the thing <laughs> is the potholes and city bikes don't go together. Right. You got to fix the streets. You got to get the, tr and then the garbage, the sanitation. I was in the lift. Speaking of lift, I was in a car going up from 59th street to Harlem on the East side. And I said to the driver, I said, let's look, look at how the garbage is taken care of all the way up until we get to 110th Street. Now watch how there is trash on the streets. You know, this wouldn't happen below 110th Street. Right. Why is that? Oh, yeah. Do you know? I asked the driver. He goes, I don't. I go, exactly. You should know. Yeah. And this is a problem. And it's it's unacceptable. And that's why I see like even in our own neighborhoods, would I see kids throwing dr trash onto the sidewalk? I'm like, they don't care about their neighborhood because they see no one else cares about the neighborhood. Yep. Like the whole city bike program was never like publicly discussed. Right. Nobody put it to a vote. Nobody asked people what they thought or, or said, here's what we're thinking. It was just done. And then it was like, hey, by the way, here's this thing. And like, that's crazy. Like like that kind of like everything behind closed doors and non-transparent is that's not the way to run a community like let communities have a voice and tell you like here's what we need here's our priorities you know and and so that's the kind of thing we need to but no one's doing that there's no politician out there that's like opening those secret doors to like the public yeah you know? i'm here though to tell you marina franklin is <laughs> is spying in that's right and i'm here to let you know so memo this has been a really this has been a phenomenal episode that is going to be shared by so many and i'm so thankful that you were here for us today can you tell our listeners where they can find you uh, <laughs> yeah well you know what i am not a huge social media person i should be or the organizations <laughs> that say, they can get involved yeah in. yeah i mean i'll say you can i mean every so often i write uh, a piece and like um, going back to the Amazon thing, I wrote this piece about Amazon, which helped. That was like one probably my biggest contribution to the effort because it just sort of like pointed out all the issues with Amazon and like as objective and calm of a way as I could just sort of like, here's the facts. Here you go. Um, and so if you go to memosalazar.medium.com, you can like read whenever. And I don't publish frequently because I'm so busy, but that is where I write stuff. And that's actually when I was on the podcast last time, it was because of that hip hop article about how like the 90s hip hop, like, you know, political, social hip hop got co-opted in the 90s. 
that we talked about. I don't know if you remember that episode back in the day, but that's the last time I was on the podcast. And that's so you can read that article too on Medium. Other than that, um, the, the CLT, follow the CLT, Western Queen CLT. So that's like at WQCLT on Facebook and Twitter. And I think in Instagram, it's at Western Queens CLT. With friends like us, you can change your world or your city. I don't know which one is better. I love it. <laughs> your world and your city. Thank you, Memo. And Marina Franklin here. Just go to my website, marinafranklin.com. And with friends like us, you can have good friends to inspire you to make the change locally. Stace, Stace says, today was so enlightening. Great choice of a guest, Marina and Memo. Thanks for all the knowledge you shared and the good you are doing in our world. Humbled to have been here with you both. Much love. Thanks, Stace. I appreciate yes. your work on this. This is good. You're doing good work. And you also can be backstage on our recordings on Mondays if you are a gold member, gold tier member on our Patreon. Check, Check us, us out. Check us out.